This morning, I'd like you to take a Bible and find Exodus 17. We're going to look at a passage that's a bit shorter than some of the others we've looked at in this series. Exodus 17, we're going to read in a minute. There are some notes in the bulletin. We're going to begin with just a little bit of background information to help you make sense of the setting and what's happening in this story. I'll start with this. Some scholars wrongly assume the story of Exodus 17 is retold in Numbers 20. I'll let you compare the passages on your own later. They are very, very similar stories. Uh, The same people involved in both stories, uh, almost identical instructions involved in both stories, but they are different stories. Right? Don't buy into this lie that it's just the same story retold and somebody got the details wrong somewhere along the way. It's two different stories. In the first story, Moses is told, the one that we're going to look at this morning, to take his staff and to strike a rock so that the people can have water. And in the second story, Moses is told to take his staff and speak to the rock that the people might have water. In the first story, the one we're going to look at this morning, Moses obeys and he does what God tells him to do. In the second story that you can read later in Numbers, he disobeys and he doesn't do what God tells him to do. And it's actually the occasion where God says to him, because you didn't uphold me as holy in the sight of the people, you don't get to enter the promised land. So we're talking about two completely different stories. I also want to mention that the exact location of what we're talking about here, whether you want to call it Rephidim or Massah or Meribah, is unknown. We're just not exactly sure where all of this happened. And I'll I'll throw a map up on the screen and I'll show you two leading possibilities. We talked about this a few weeks ago. Some Bible scholars take that red circle at the bottom of the Sinai Peninsula and they say that's where Mount Sinai was. And so this story happened close to that because we're really close to Sinai at this point. Other scholars that I tend to agree with say, no, they actually went around the Gulf of Aqaba, around into what we call Saudi Arabia, and Mount Sinai is somewhere out in what we know as Saudi Arabia. And so I would throw that blue circle at you and say, that's where Sinai is or was, and that's where this story happened, somewhere in that area. And just as a note of curiosity, this is just completely speculative. You just take it for whatever it's worth. But there are some scholars that think they have found the exact rock that Moses struck. And it's actually in Saudi Arabia. You can't just go see it for fun. It's kind of a restricted area. But there are scholars that go out there and they look at this rock and they think it fits the right location. And you can see why they would think that maybe this could be the spot. That's quite a blow to hit a rock and it just split right down the middle. And I'll be honest with you, that could be the rock. Like that could be the one rock that was out there and God said, go to this place. I think it's in the right geographic area and hit it. And he hit it and it split maybe and water came out of it. Or it could just be a rock with a big crevice down the middle. I have no idea. So you can take that for whatever it's worth. I'm not sure that it's worth much. The last thing I'll mention is this. Scholars debate the location of quote-unquote Horeb in quote-unquote Sinai, most scholars will tell you that Horeb is a group of mountains that included Mount Sinai. And so we talked about this a few weeks back when we looked at the burning bush, when God appeared to Moses at the burning bush, and we tried to just sort of talk a little bit and say, where was that? Where was Horeb, and what is Sinai, and what's the difference? And just a simple way to think about this is, uh, talking about Horeb would be like saying, I live in the Permian Basin. Talking about Mount Sinai would be like saying, I live in Odessa. Both true, 
but one is just a little bit more specific than the other one. And that's probably the same thing going on when the Bible talks about Horeb and Mount Sinai as if those were the same places. The big idea this morning is exactly the same big idea we talked about last week. No surprises. Despite their sin, God graciously, emphasis on God's grace, He graciously provided for His people. So I told you a few weeks back that there's several stories that back up together here and they all just drive the same idea home. And it's just almost uh, repeat. Is the people, they need water, they only have bitter water and God provides for them even though they grumble. Then in the very next chapter, they need food and they're grumbling about it and God provides food for them. And then in this chapter, they need water again. They don't even have bitter water to start with. So here they go with the grumbling stuff all over again. And again, God graciously provides for his people. So that's the big idea. Let's read the passage and then we'll pray and then we'll try to make sense of what the text is telling us. Exodus 17.1, the Word of God says this, All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages according to the commandment of the Lord and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt? To kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, And take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile. And go, behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb. And you shall strike the rock. And water shall come out of it. And the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the name of the place Massah and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel. And because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? It's the word of God. Let's pray together. Father, as we read these stories, we are reminded of your character. We're reminded of who you are. We're reminded of your grace to your people. Father, we're reminded of our sin. And as we look at this story, a familiar story, another familiar story from the book of Exodus, we pray that you would give us eyes to see the truth, that we would not twist this story into some sort of morality tale that is just a warning about grumbling, but that we would see gospel truth about who you are and what you've done to save us. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in case you missed it, Friday was Groundhog Day, and... uh, I don't know if you've ever thought about it. This is really a ridiculous day in, uh, in American culture, that there's a day um, where we just stop and we look at what a groundhog is going to do when he comes out of his hole, and then we prognosticate, to use the word that is often thrown around with, with Groundhog Day, we prognosticate about winter. And so, you know, Groundhog Day was Friday, and we're supposed to have six more weeks of winter. And the whole thing comes from a a Pennsylvania Dutch superstition about groundhogs coming out of the ground and how you know what the weather's going to be like 
moving into spring. I did read something interesting this week. In Germany, they have their own version of Groundhog Day, but they don't use groundhogs. They use honey badgers. And it doesn't seem quite as safe to me as Groundhog Day to think about, let's gather around the honey badger hole and see what happens when he comes out. But it does sound pretty German, and so they have uh, Badger Day in Germany. When some of you think about Groundhog Day, you don't think about the weather and the, uh, the stuff. You think about the movie, Groundhog Day. In fact, I saw several of you post, I think, this exact picture on Groundhog Day in honor of the movie. And in the movie, if you haven't seen it, if you're the only person that hasn't seen it, Bill Murray gets caught in a time loop, and he just lives the same day over and over and over in Punxsutawney, Pennsylvania, and he's miserable, and he tries everything he can do to get out of this day, but it's just the same day over and over and over again. I love you, babe, clicks on at 6 a.m., and he sees the same insurance guy, Ned Ryerson, on the sidewalk every morning. It's just the same day over and over and over again. When you read the book of Exodus, you almost feel like you're caught in that time loop, right? Because it's just almost the same story over and over and over and over again. And if you've read through the rest of the Old Testament, you know there's a lot of similar stories that follow. When you get into the book of Numbers, it's just almost the same thing over and over and over again. God puts his people in precarious situations where they need to rely on him and where they have every reason to rely on him. And over and over and over again, they grumble and they rebel and they reject God's goodness and his grace and his mercy and his provision in their lives. And it just sort of happens over and over and over again. If you're counting in the book of Exodus, this is now the fourth chapter in a row where they've grumbled. It just keeps happening over and over and over again. Exodus 14, they're at the Red Sea. They just thought they were headed to freedom, but now Pharaoh's coming for them, and the text says the people grumbled. Why did you bring us out here just so Pharaoh could slaughter us? Very next chapter, Exodus 15, they have bitter water to drink, but it's no good. It's, maybe it's making people sick or it's not even drinkable at all, and they're grumbling about the water. Chapter 16, they're hungry, so they grumble. They say, oh, remember back in Egypt, we had these meat pots, and we had the, all the food we could eat. It was so great back in Egypt. We have nothing to eat. You just brought us out here to kill us by starvation, and they're grumbling. We read in chapter 17, the exact same day, just playing over again, the people now are grumbling about not having any water. None of that is new. Here's what's new in Exodus 17, right? This is on your outline. God had been testing the Hebrews, but now the Hebrews begin testing God. And they're grumbling, if you could put it this way, it reaches a new level. Or maybe you could say it sinks to a new low, if you wanted to be more accurate. Their grumbling sinks to a new low. Look at Exodus 17, 2. It says, the people quarreled with Moses They said, give us water to drink. And Moses' response is, why are you testing the Lord? And you see the exact same idea in in, uh, verse 7, where it says, because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? Right? God has been testing them. He's been putting them in these situations where they need to rely on him. But now the people are testing God. They're in effect putting God on probation saying, we're no longer going to trust in you until you give us more evidence. We're no longer going to worship you or serve you until you come through again. 
until you deliver just one more time. And they've got plenty of evidence. You've been tracking through the book of Exodus. They have every reason to trust God. But they're saying, unless you give us water, unless you give us something to drink, you're no longer worthy of our affection. It's almost as if they're putting God on trial. And it's the ultimate example of a kangaroo court. Like these people, helpless slaves that God redeemed from slavery, now putting the Lord God himself on trial. It's, it's, it's so preposterous to think about it. I don't know that this is even remotely good as an illustration. But imagine that you had some grievance against the United States government. Some case that you wanted to bring. The government had wronged you in some way. And instead of following the proper channels and going through legitimate courts, you call up Judge Judy. And you say, hey, I got a case for you. I want to sue the President of the United States on your TV show. Like, it's, it's comical. It's so comical they would just hang up on you. They wouldn't even entertain it. Here you have creatures who have been redeemed by the Lord They've been saved by the Lord. They find themselves in a situation where they are being tested. Not having water is a real problem. But rather than coming to God in faith and trusting Him, their response is, we're going to put God to the test, to the trial. You can see their heart in the three different things that they say in the passage. The text records three words from the lips of the Hebrews. And as I describe it here, I apologize. This is a little bit preachery. I usually don't get this preachery with alliteration. But I think this is pretty good. I got a few of these ideas out of a commentary. They demanded God's provision. They disparaged God's plan. And they doubted His presence. That's their heart in the whole thing. They demand His provision. They disparage or they speak ill of His plan. And they doubt whether or not he's really with them. They doubt his presence. And so just look at these three verses quickly. Verse 2, the people quarreled with Moses and they said, give us water to drink. That's not a request from the people. That's not a, a petition. That's not a, may we please have something to drink. We know you can do it. Would you please come through? That's a demand that the people are making of God. How preposterous for the creature to make a demand on the Creator. We read it and we think, well, we would never say anything like that. I would never come to God with my demands. But I think people do it all the time. All the time. I'll give you just a couple of examples. I think people do it when they say things like, God, if you will get me out of this situation, then I will do this. Well, what if he doesn't get you out of the situation? Then you're not going to do it? You're not going to worship him? You're not going to serve him? You're not going to give? You're not going to whatever? Unless he comes through the way you think he should come through? That's essentially backing God into a corner and making a demand and putting him to the test saying, if you do what I want you to do, you got me on your team. Otherwise, I'm not sure. I think people do the same thing when they say things like, I could just never believe in a God who fill in the blank. As if we have the right to tell God who he should be. As if we have the right to fill anything in that blank. That's not our place to pick and choose what kind of a God we want to believe in or what kind of a God we want to have rule over us. He is who he is. You don't get a vote in it. I don't get a vote in it. 
Our job is not to say, well, I'll believe in you if you fit my expectations. Our job is simply to say, God, if this is how you've revealed yourself to us in your word, then this is who you are. And it's good. And we'll praise you for it. Not to pick and choose and make demands of God. So the people do that. They demand God's provision. Secondly, they disparage his plan and they use the same old tired line about you just brought us out here to kill us. Verse 3. They grumbled against Moses and they said, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? You're used to that line at this point, so it doesn't strike you as particularly offensive or heinous, but it's really both of those things. That the people who God redeemed from slavery in Egypt, who he redeemed so that they could have a relationship with him, those people say to God, you have only done this so that you can sadistically slaughter us in the wilderness. They don't like his plan, and as they express it with their tongues, it's heinous and it's offensive. And then we get to the real issue in verse 7, and they ask the question, is the Lord among us or not? If you would have sat down with these people and said, don't you remember the plagues? They would have said, oh, of course we remember the plagues. It was fantastic. You say, don't you remember the Passover? Oh, yeah, we remember it. We lived through it. We were there. Don't you remember the Red Sea? Absolutely. They can look back and check off all the things that God had done for them. The real question is, are you with me now? And with hindsight, it's so easy to look back on why people and say, you're just a bunch of idiots. Why don't you get it? People do the exact same thing today. You say, I just don't know why God would put me in this situation. I don't know why he would allow this to happen. I don't know why he would bring this into my life. And in all of those questions, you're asking this question, I'm asking this question, is the Lord among us or not? Is he with me or not? And I can, t- I can say to you, but don't you believe he was with Noah? You say, yeah, yeah, I know all about Noah. I'm not talking about Noah. Well, don't you believe he was with the people of Israel? I know all about that story. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about right now. You say, but don't you know the stories of the gospel about Jesus? I know all that. My question isn't about that stuff. My question is about today. Is he with me today or not? And the people ask this question. They're doubting his plan. They're doubting his presence. They're disparaging his plan. I've quoted A.W. Pink several times, and I'm going to continue to do that because he's quotable. He says, the human heart would rather lean upon a cobweb of human resources than upon the arm of an omnipotent, all-wise, and infinitely gracious God. And the reality is, when you look at the people and you look at how they respond to God and how they speak to God, it's a picture of us. Prone to lean on the cobweb of our own abilities rather than on the omnipotent hand of God himself. So we see the failure of the Hebrews, but I'm going to move on from the Hebrews, and I'm going to suggest to you that there's more blame to be passed around here. It's not only the Hebrews who have a problem with what they say, but I also think it's Moses. And this is on your notes. I think the failure of Moses can be seen in the words that he speaks to God in this passage. And you see Moses' words in verse 4. Moses cried to the Lord, and look what he says. What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready 
to stone me. You may look at that verse and you may say, you know, how can you blame the guy? It's a rough crowd. He's frustrated. He's relived this Groundhog Day several times already. Who can blame him? I just want to point out to you that this is not the guy we saw on the shore of the Red Sea. Do you remember at the shore of the Red Sea, they just come out of Egypt, they've seen the plagues, they've seen the Passover, they're getting ready to have Pharaoh come behind them and to walk through and the people are grumbling and they're saying, what's going to happen? You're going to kill us. And look at what Moses says back in Exodus 14. This is, I think, a pretty good response. Do we have that verse, Exodus 14? Fear not, stand firm, see the salvation of the Lord which he will work for you today. Like that's good stuff, right? That's how you respond to grumbling. Hey, knock it off. Just stay here and trust God and he's going to provide for you. That's good. That's leadership. And now we see Moses coming to God and saying, what am I going to do with these people? They're about to kill me. We can't fault Moses for grumbling about not having water, but I think we can fault Moses for grumbling about the people. What am I going to do with these people? I like what... uh, what John Calvin said, I've shared several quotes with you from, from these commentaries I've been reading through. Calvin says this, There's something in these words which sounds angry and obstreperous. And I'll be honest with you, I put the quote up there because I like the word obstreperous. I bet you haven't used it in the last week, so I'm going to give you a definition. It means noisy and difficult to control, rebellious, mutinous, and riotous. And he's not talking about the Hebrews, he's talking about Moses. So when you go out to eat today and your kids are rowdy at the table, you can say, hey, knock it off, you're being too obstreperous. You're like Moses, complaining. What am I going to do with these people? These people are ready to kill me. We've lost the guy who stood up at the shore of the Red Sea and said, look, just keep your mouth closed, just keep your eyes open, and God's going to come through in a great way. And instead we see a guy who seems to be wringing his hands, wondering what is his next move. So we see the failure of Moses in the words that he speaks to God. In spite of all that, in spite of the fact that everyone is melting down, God graciously provides water for his people. God's grace, we talked about this last week, is when he gives you the opposite of what you deserve. What the people deserve in this moment is to be struck with judgment. And instead, God gives them water. Just like last week, they deserve to be struck with the rod of God's justice and judgment, and instead He graciously gave them sweet, honey-flavored bread from heaven. And in Exodus 17, it's not bread, but it's water. Look at verse 5 and 6. The Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people. Take with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb. He doesn't say, I'm going to stand next to you, as in, I'm going to be with you in this. He says to Moses, I'm going to stand before you. I'm going to stand in front of you. It's you, then it's me, then it's the rock. And the plan is, you take your staff and you hit the rock. And if you're Moses, you're thinking, wait a minute, I'm going to hit God? Because he's in front of me. Take your staff, I'm standing in front of you, and you hit the rock, and the people will have water to drink. 
This is grace. This is God saying to his people, you deserve to be struck with judgment. But rather than give you what you deserve, I'm going to intervene and I'm going to take the blow for you as I stand before Moses. I'm going to take this blow and the result is you're going to get what you need, which is water. I'm going to give you the opposite of what you deserve. And I'm not going to take justice or judgment and just sweep it under the rug as if it doesn't matter. We're going to uphold justice. Someone's taking the blow, but I'm going to take it for you. It's not because they were good people. It's because God is a gracious God. Look what the psalmist says in Psalm 105. He opened the rock and water gushed out. It flowed through the desert like a river. Why did he do it? He remembered his holy promise and Abraham his servant. It was not because the people were needy. It was not because the people were lovable. It's not because the people were good people at heart. It's not because the people earned it or deserved it. It's because God had made a promise. That's the ground of God's grace. You've got to get this deep in your bones, deep in your brain. you just got to know it and feel it and believe it. God's grace to you is not conditioned on how good you are. If it was, it wouldn't be grace. It's grounded or it's conditioned on his promise. He just simply said to Abraham, I'm going to do great things through you, through your family, and through your line. And because he made that promise, when he came to these wicked, rebellious people in the wilderness, he gave them grace. He gave them the opposite of what they deserved, not because they earned it, merited it, were good people, were nice folks, but because he had made a promise. He graciously provided water for these people to drink. And I hope in all this you see that this is really a story about Jesus. You may think it's a story about water and grumbling and thirsty people. It's entirely a story about Jesus. And I'll just point out a couple of thoughts. The first is this. Jesus relived Israel's history and he obeyed where they sinned. He relived the history of Israel and he obeyed where they sinned. This is so clear in the opening chapters of the Gospel of Matthew. Don't turn there. Read it later. But just think with me. Matthew chapter 1. Of all the ways you could start off a a gospel account of Jesus' life, Matthew starts off with a genealogy that goes all the way back to Abraham. Why? Because he wants you to know Jesus comes from Abraham. In Exodus 17, we're dealing with a group of people that we can trace all the way back to Abraham. That's not a coincidence. In Matthew chapter 2, we read this interesting detail that Herod wanted to kill all the babies in Bethlehem, and so his family packed up, being warned in a dream, and they flee where? They're in danger of losing their life, and they flee to Egypt. And then a few years later, they leave Egypt and they come back to the promised land. And Matthew, do you know what he says? He says, it's so that the scripture could be fulfilled. Out of Egypt, I called my son. God's people in, in uh, Exodus, they, in Genesis and Exodus, they flee to Egypt so that their lives can be saved. And then God calls his people out. And the, the gospel writers, Matthew is telling you, that's the same thing that happened with Jesus. Flees to Egypt for safety and God calls him out. He's reliving this history. How about Matthew 3? Jesus comes up to John the Baptist and he says, I need you to baptize me. This baptism of John was a confession of sin. It was a baptism of repentance. It was a picture for all the world to say that you deserve to die under the waters, but that by God's grace you are coming out to new life. 
And Jesus wants to be baptized to fulfill all righteousness. Why? Yes, he's identifying with us, but he's reliving exactly what Israel went through. When Israel walks through the sea, these waters that were judgment on Pharaoh and judgment on his army, and the people just pass through safely. Jesus enters these waters of baptism, and he's submersed beneath it, and he passes through to a new life. Then we come to Matthew 4, the passage I'm really talking about, and Jesus is immediately driven out into, of all places, the wilderness. And he's hungry, and he's thirsty, and he faces testing and temptation. And if you're reading through Matthew, you think, it's like I've read this story before. It's like Groundhog Day in the New Testament. People connected to Abraham, people who end up in Egypt and leave, people who pass through water, people who are tested and tempted in the wilderness. It's like I've read this, and you say, I know how this story ends. I know how it's ended all the previous go-arounds. But then you read Matthew's account, and you read that Jesus, the faithful remnant of one, obeys. And he doesn't grumble. And he doesn't fall for the bait or the temptation. And where over and over and over again, God's people had failed and sinned and rebelled and disobeyed and been obstreperous, Jesus is righteous. And because he's righteous, he's able to take our place on the cross. And that's the last idea I want you to see as we think about Exodus 17. Jesus was struck with judgment that we might live. Struck with judgment that we might live. I want you to listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, just the first few verses. Paul says, I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were, oh look, he used that word, baptized with Moses. This is some sort of baptism passing through the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and they all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. When you read that, and if you like to make notes in your Bible, you just need a note out there that says, go back to Exodus 17 and reread it. Paul is not trying to say Jesus became a rock, or some sort of rock actually became Jesus. What he's saying is that rock that Moses struck was a preview, it was a picture, it was a type of what God was going to do one day through His Son. The people deserve to be struck with judgment in the wilderness. And instead of striking the people with judgment and justice and punishing them like they rightly deserved, God intervenes and He steps in between His people and that, ju- that judgment and He takes the blow so that they can live. And Paul says, that's the cross. That's exactly what God did at the cross. You and I are guilty, we deserve judgment, we deserve deserve punishment, we deserve, deserve God's wrath. And instead of giving us what we deserve, God intervenes and He comes Himself. He becomes a man and He stands in our place and He takes the blow. He's struck with God's justice and judgment that we can receive grace and that we can live. This is exactly what Isaiah promised would happen. Look at Isaiah 53. He has borne our griefs, he has carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. He was wounded for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. 
All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Listen, you can approach Exodus 17 as if it's just a nice morality tale about why you shouldn't grumble. And certainly there's some application in that direction. But if your biggest takeaway from Exodus 17 is a lesson about grumbling, you miss the entire point of the story. You've completely missed it. I thought this week about uh, Brooke and I when we first moved to Kentucky. We were members at Ninth and O Baptist Church, and we were in a Sunday school class by Dr. Russell Moore. Uh, some of you may know who Dr. Moore is. That's him with his family. He used to be a professor and a dean at Southern Seminary. He's moved on. He's the president of the Southern Baptist Convention Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission. So he heads that organization up and leads that ministry. But when we were in Louisville, he taught our Sunday school class. And while we were there for about a two-year period, he taught through the book of Genesis and then the book of Exodus. And every single morning when we walked into Sunday school, we did the exact same routine. He would stand up, we would take prayer requests, he would pray for everybody, and then he would say this, would you please open your Bibles to the gospel of Genesis? And then when we got out of Genesis, he would say, would you please open your Bible to the gospel of Exodus? Look, is a smart guy. He knows they're not gospels. But he's trying to make a point. And the point is, these stories in the book of Exodus, they're not just sort of disjointed, disconnected stories that we piece together and we say, well, this one teaches you not to grumble. So this would be a good one to teach your kids. Teach them not to grumble. If you take this story and you teach it to your kids or your grandkids or your Sunday school class or your neighbor or whoever, and all you take out of it, all you drive home is the point is you shouldn't grumble, you completely missed it. That's not what it's about. It's about the gospel. It's about God being holy. And it's about us being sinful. And it's about God in His grace stepping in to take the justice and the judgment and the punishment that should have fallen on us so that we can live. And it's about what does it mean to be a repentant people? What does it mean to be a humble, trusting people? It's not just a story about grumbling. It's a story about Jesus. And my prayer is that as we read it, as we continue to plow through Exodus, we don't just turn them into do this, do that, don't do this, don't do that type stories but that we see who God is and we see the beauty of what he's done to save his people through his son, Jesus Christ. So I'm going to pray for you as we end and pray that God would drive this point home to us and that we would see it as a beautiful thing. Father, we ask this morning that as we see this picture of Christ stricken and smitten and afflicted for us, so that we can live and that your grace could be poured out on us and that justice at the same time could be served. Father, that we would see the beauty of who you are, that we would see the beauty of salvation through your Son, that we would stop to marvel at your grace. Father, we do see ourselves in this story. We see our sin, we see our tendencies, we see our grumbling, we see all of it, but more than that, we want to see Christ and we want to see Jesus. 
Father, when we're bored with that same old gospel story, we pray that you would change our hearts. Father, when we want something more, when we want to turn the scriptures into a morality lesson, we pray that you would change our hearts. Pray that you would make us people who are fascinated with and captivated by the beauty of the gospel, of what you've done to save us through your son. Father, we want to praise you for who you are. We want to praise you for your grace and your mercy. And we do it all in Jesus' name. Amen.